Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Hawaii Church, and thank you for joining us in worship. And at this time, I invite you to take out your Bible or Bible underneath the chair in front of you and turn to the book of Luke. And we are in Luke chapter 9 and verse 57 as we continue our study through Luke after a two-week break from it. Uh, Luke 9, 57 through 62 is our passage today, and that passage can be found on page 868 if you are using the church Bible, page 868. Luke chapter 9 and verse 57. Before we uh, look at our text, would you please join me in prayer? Uh, Father, we come uh, before your word. And by the Spirit, would you make it alive to us? Help us to see our own hearts with clarity and with honesty as to what we truly value. And please, please, please give us eyes to see the beauty and the worth of Jesus Christ, which far surpasses everything in all of creation. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Our passage is about what it means to follow Jesus. And this is a set of verses which is designed, I think, to let us know if we are just attracted to the idea of following Jesus or if we really understand what discipleship is all about. Now, at this point in the narrative, Jesus has resolutely set his face towards Jerusalem. And what awaits him there is a betrayal, a corrupt arrest, a sham of a trial, mocking, scourging, suffering. And what ultimately awaits Jesus in Jerusalem is his own death upon the cross. Jesus knows this. He said as much in verse 22 of the same chapter. Look with me quickly there, verse 22. Jesus says, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Jesus knows exactly what awaits him in Jerusalem. He's not going into this blind. He fully anticipates this cross and he heads towards it with determination. And so in one sense, he's really been carrying this with him from eternity past and denying himself every bit of the way for the sake of our salvation, for the sake of our souls. In light of this, Jesus instructs his disciples in the very next verse, trying to impress this upon them, that if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Verse 22 and verse 23 come as a pair because his life and our lives are linked. Our Savior bears a cross and his followers are to bear one as well and his self-denial is what fuels our own to show all who would desire to follow him what following Jesus really entails. Because all of discipleship is really to be seen in light of the cross. And we come to a text now where we have three people who intend to follow Jesus. We have three brief encounters with would-be disciples on the way to Jerusalem. And each has somewhat of a superficial, uh, even a romantic perception of what following him is going to be like. And Jesus gives to each a dosage of reality, an upfront and very full disclosure of what true discipleship really involves. We don't know their names. We know nothing of their testimonies. We don't know the outcome of these interactions with Jesus. But Luke puts these people side by side by side because the issue with each is the same. They don't really understand what it means to follow Jesus. 
And it's in each of these three that Jesus tests their hearts. He, he opens them up right in front of them. And I think this is recorded here in Luke the way that it is so that Jesus might open up our hearts and test them as well. We read in verse 57, Jesus here is interacting with a very uh, confident would-be disciple. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Here we have someone who wants to follow Jesus, but doesn't really understand the cost of following him. This is an overly confident and yet very empty declaration of a desire to follow Christ. But he doesn't really know what he's declaring because he's not focused on what Jesus is focused on. It's, it's very easy uh, to focus on things associated with Jesus and really be blind to the cross. Because at this point, while Jesus did definitely experience rejection, there was still quite a bit of buzz and excitement surrounding everything that he had been doing. You can't feed 5,000 people with a meal meant for a person or two and not have word spread. You can't heal a leper on the outskirts of society and have this newly skinned person return to his family and friends without rumors going around. You can't have a formerly a bedridden, paralyzed man now walking through town on his own two legs without that same man replying to all the questions, Jesus is the one who did this for me. There's a 12-year-old girl in her own neighborhood playing in the streets, and everyone in that neighborhood attended her funeral. How does that happen? Because Jesus is the one who raised her from death to life. In addition to these miracles, Jesus is proclaiming the kingdom of God while Israel is currently under the kingdom of Rome. And Jesus is preaching in such a way that no one had ever heard anything like it. He has this authority about him, this power in utter distinction from every other religious elite of the day. And yet it is at the same time that he keeps company with tax collectors prostitutes, Gentiles, and so no one is excluded and their lives are turned upside down in reform. They leave their paths of sin and are now included in being a part of a loving community surrounding the Son of God. And so this man, witnessing things like these, he comes up to Jesus with a very bold claim, I will follow you wherever you go, wherever. This is a big promise. This is a promise that spouses won't even make for one another. Wherever you go, I'll follow you. This is a powerful pledge of unlimited commitment, and most of us in most churches would view this kind of outward resolve with excitement and open arms. Make him say the prayer. Baptize him quickly before he changes his mind. Put him in membership now. Strike while the iron is hot because he sounds so sincere. Jesus sees beyond the surface of this confession he doesn't take this pledge at face value. Instead, he tests this man's commitment. He opens the man's heart before him. Wherever I go, you'll follow me. Foxes have holes. The birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus doesn't have a penny to his name. I think we have to let that sink in. Jesus has to rely on other people to provide him a place to stay. He's crashing on couches, so to speak. And the animals of the earth and the birds of the sky have more in terms of living security than Jesus does. Even his creatures have more comforts than he. But this is the part that doesn't put that sparkle in the eye. 
There's a, a very unglamorous side to following Jesus wherever he goes. If we're going to actually be like Jesus. The man in our text is more focused on the buzz, the hype, the crowds, the concert-like venues, even the exciting drama when Jesus does get rejected. I can and will follow you through all of that wherever it is. And people are consistently drawn to these kinds of things, which is why thousands would stalk Jesus' every step. But Jesus is showing to him the cost, the Jerusalem road, this cross-bearing. Are you sure you want to follow me? if it may mean that you won't even have a home to lay your head. Am I worth it? Do you really want to be like me? And then it gets really quiet. I think the same thing can happen today, and, and we can be enamored uh, with things associated with Jesus and miss the point entirely. We can witness mighty things that people can do in a person's life. Substance abuse kicked. Pornography left behind, a new purpose for living, reconciliation in marriages, a loving community of friends at church, friends who genuinely do want what's best for you. We can be moved to tears by the lyrics of a song that hits you right in the chest. We can hit these emotional highs when we see people turn over a new leaf. We can hear the word of God proclaimed with eagerness that a message from heaven has come to earth which can only be found in these pages. And this is a modern-day equivalent of hearing the kingdom of God, eating some miraculous food, watching people get healed, and being sucked into these glamorous parts of ministry. And in this high, and with the upswings of this emotion, we can come to a point where we genuinely believe that Jesus Christ is everything to us, and that we would follow him wherever it is that he wants to lead until he shows us the cost, until he shows us what we leave behind. Until Jesus shows us that following him necessarily requires a cross. And that we imitate Jesus and pattern our lives after him in the way that we self-deny. Discipleship is costly. And we can read texts like 2 Timothy 2.3, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. And understand that there's a battle to be fought and a race to be run and a work to be done, that this is what defines discipleship and not a life of ease or superficial happiness or wealth and comfort. And then when this sinks in, the people begin to drop like flies. So often it is that there are overly confident and yet very empty declarations of a desire to follow Jesus because our focus so easily is upon the hype and not upon the cross. And Jesus here is exposing these false pretenses. The craziest thing I think in this text is not this man, but is Jesus' admission of the nature of his own life. We are the creator of the universe, homeless in his own creation. We are the son of God from eternity past, Enjoying the splendors of heaven, the glory of the Father, now he has no place to lay his head. The ultimate condescension is such that our best imaginations cannot scratch the surface of enumerating that kind of drop. And for what reason? Why does Jesus do this? 2 Corinthians 8 9 tells us, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. This is the very heart of the gospel. This is the purpose of the cross. 
Jesus pays for our sins. He gives up everything to come and be our savior. And when we can measure that drop is when we can measure the depth of his love for us, which should fuel then our desire to follow him. The weight of his cross shows the weight of his grace. The sheer amount of self-denial shows the sheer amount of his desire for us to be with him. And then when the cross and the suffering of Jesus in Jerusalem becomes more and more the focus of our hearts and attention, the more and more we can lose all for him and understand what discipleship really is and view following Christ in light of this cross and therefore gain everything in doing so. Jesus gives up everything for us. And brothers and sisters, he does call us to give up everything for him. We're not called to live a life of luxury, but of suffering service for his sake and the gospels. You know, brothers and sisters, there's a a cost to discipleship. Make no mistake. Christ did not come to lead us to riches and comforts and glories in this very momentary, short and passing life. That's not what Jesus did in his own life on earth. He didn't convert his miraculous power and oratory skill and leadership ability for the sake of career and gold and power. He did it to win the souls of humanity and to do the will of his Father. And when we follow him, we mimic him in much the same way that we self-deny for the glory of God and for the souls of humankind. Church family, following Jesus always has a cost. True discipleship might cost you a raise. It might cost you a few or more than a few drops down the social ladder. It might bring you family conflict because you live quite a bit differently than the ones that you love. It will cost you financially, whether by missed opportunities or because you decide to be massively generous to the church and our mission, which then downgrades your lifestyle. True discipleship, it always costs. But it is that when our faith does cost us something, that we know more and more that we have really understood what following Jesus is about. Brothers and sisters, are we ready for this level of commitment to follow the one who doesn't even have what a fox has? Is following Jesus worth this cost to you? And so it is that while this person in these verses has enthusiastically offered to follow Jesus unconditionally and wherever he would lead, he didn't really ever consider what true discipleship meant didn't count the cost, and with his heart exposed by Jesus before himself and before the Son of God, we don't have a recorded response. Verse 59, we have another uh, would-be disciple and follower of Jesus. To another, he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury the dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. If the first person's issue was being blind to the cost of following Jesus, we have a person here who who simply has higher priorities in his life than following Jesus. This is a man who has other things which must come first, and that word first is a key word. Jesus says, follow me. He says, Lord, let me first, dot, dot, dot. I want to follow you, but just not right now. And this person's priority is not the comforts of home, but it's loyalty to his own family. Now, commentators have a bunch of different theories. Some say that this man's dad is still alive, but he's near the age of death, and so this guy wanted to therefore hang around till he dies so he can get that inheritance. Therefore, his motive is financial. Others give more credit to this man's character and say, you know, he's fulfilling his sonly duties and honoring his dad, 
and a proper burial would occur on the day of death, and then waiting for perhaps up to a year after decomposition had taken place, and then you move those bones to the family tomb. That's how you honor your dad, which is therefore his ultimate motivation. If his dad has already died, at the very least, there's this 30-day period of mourning, which assumed that the son would be present in order to be a good son. The text does not affirm or deny any of these theories, nor is Jesus asking for more clarification as to the context. Whatever his motive, good, bad, honorable, is really irrelevant because his priorities are still off. Whenever someone has to do something first, when Jesus is calling you now to come and follow him, whatever comes before that shows that we don't understand what discipleship is about. When Jesus says, leave the dead to bury the dead, he is prioritizing the spiritual over the secular. Spiritually dead people can bury physically dead people. Funerals occur every day and all the time. And therefore, those outside the kingdom of God can take care of those kinds of things. Temporal things to temporal people, John MacArthur says. But the one who follows Jesus sees the priority of the spiritual over the secular, the kingdom of God over the kingdoms of the world. Even when the kingdom of the world includes good things like honoring parents, even when there's nobility in secular responsibility, there are enough spiritually dead people to bury the physical dead. But there aren't enough living ones to preach the kingdom of God. And as Jesus opens up this man's heart before him and before us, Jesus is putting his finger right on the main issue with him. Do you love and cherish more your parents? Or do you love and cherish more following Jesus? Who is first in your life? Jesus or family? Because following him and proclaiming his kingdom is the allegiance and the loyalty that is the most important first and everything else must come second. There's a greater urgency in proclaiming the gospel than there is even of bearing our fathers. And family ties must not come in the way of us following Jesus. You know, this man and so many people today so often use their family situations as an excuse for delaying discipleship. And this shows to us that frequently it is that what hinders us from following Jesus is not always something sinful but even things which are good and noble, when they are made ultimate, they get in the way of what Jesus wants us to do. The statement here that Jesus makes can sound very harsh, but I think he does this on purpose to awaken us to the demands of true discipleship. This is a tough set of verses because this is not a choice between sin and righteousness. This is not a choice between riches and great commission. This is a choice between family and Jesus. And does following Jesus take a higher priority than our family obligations? The answer to all who desire discipleship is yes. Are there any questions to that? If Jesus just misspoke here, he actually doubles down on this concept in Luke 14, 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. A statement is not about hatred. Jesus calls us to love others as we love ourselves. This is a statement about priority because ultimately following Jesus comes down to what is more important to us in this life. Discipleship and following Christ is about putting him first. Again, brothers and sisters, is this commitment 
one that we want to make to him. You want to put him this high on your list? This high on what you need to pursue? Jesus is exposing this man's heart to expose ours as well. And so we have a person here who simply has a higher priority in his life than following Jesus. And even though it is a potentially good priority, it's no longer good when it's placed above Jesus' invitation to follow him and preach the kingdom of God. Verse 61, we see the same concept again, but put in a different way. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. We have here our third uh, would-be disciple who looks more at what he's losing than what he is gaining by following Jesus. This guy looks more backward than he does forward, clinging to his old life rather than keeping his eyes on Christ. And again, this person has all the best intentions. He proclaims very boldly, I will follow you, Lord. And then he follows that magnificent phrase with this short little word, but. And this is a very bad but. But let me first. This is again about priorities. Jesus knows this person's heart and how difficult it is for him to cut ties with his past, to say goodbye to certain relationships, the life that is loved and to begin new, uh, a different life with Jesus. And the imagery is such that when a farmer plows and looks backward, the plowing comes out all crooked. It's useless for the task of sowing crops, and it will zig and zag when you're looking the wrong way. The way a farmer plows straight is by looking forward at a fixed point, and that plow is going to be on a rail. And when it is that we sentimentally contemplate our last past lives, we're looking the wrong direction. Paul makes a similar point in Philippians 3, 13, and 14. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Some of us keep looking backward too much. As if the Christian life is all loss and no gain. All what we leave behind and not what we look forward to. As if the believing life is all what I have given up and what I have to say goodbye to and what I have to sacrifice for Christ. And then when we try and say goodbye, we hug our past lives a little too long and grip that a little too tightly. And with tears in our eyes, saying sayonara to the things that we really love, with great reluctance and sadness hanging our heads, do we then turn to Jesus and think, well, I guess this is just the way it has to be. The man in our text, Jesus knows. Going back, saying farewell, people crying over him and him crying over them could take days, if not weeks. They'll say, why don't you just stay a little bit longer? I mean, this is a life decision. What's another week going to do? And that clinging to the past has been the ruin of so many disciples. One last hug, one last kiss, one last look. One last look was enough to turn Lot's wife into a pillar of salt in Genesis 19. We can't walk a few steps to Jesus, turn around, and then try and walk a few steps and then turn around. You can't follow Jesus that way. This kind of indecision prevents people from real discipleship. And again, this is about priorities. I do want to follow Jesus, but let me turn around real quick. I just have to first hit this number in my bank account, and then Jesus can come first. 
Let me linger in this relationship that I know dishonors God, but I don't want to hurt or offend this person I love. Subtitle says, I'd rather offend Jesus than him or her. Sometimes Jesus calls us to burn some bridges. If that prevents us from coming to him, let me dwell on social media for hours. Look at my old crew and all the fun it looks like they're having while I have to go to church because it's my duty. Think about the alcohol, the greed, the highs, the sex, the substance abuse, and that one, and this one, and blah, 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 blah. Our heads keep turning and looking fondly backward, not hopefully forward, making a second guess our decision to even follow him in the first place. And for so many of us, again, the deal breaker's family. It's not a mistake that Jesus does both, hits it both twice. Many of you and are the only believers in your family, and you simply still cannot put Jesus above them. How many young people have come through our church seemingly in love with Jesus? And then their parents say, you know what, Sunday's family day. Love Jesus, that's fine, but don't turn your backs on us. And the response is, well, I don't want to disappoint them, so I'm not going to come and worship, but I'll still be devoted to them. I'll follow, but first. The list goes on and on. I will follow, but first baseball, but first, SATs, but first, surf, but first, I got to paint the house, first, I got to hit that gym, but first, but first, by first is where we put everything but Jesus, everything I used to live for, everything that used to identify me first, and then we try and fit Jesus into the leftover gaps with leftover time. Jesus says so plainly, clearly, and explicitly here, the one who looks back like this is not fit for the kingdom of God. Jesus wants us to put him first and then with the leftover space and gaps and time, do those other things, but do those things unto him. You know, when I read this passage shortly after becoming a Christian, I honestly thought this text shouldn't even be in the Bible. Jesus sounds a little too mean to be a God of love. I mean, if I'm reading this rightly, you can't own a house, you can't bury your dad, you can't say goodbye to family and friends. Couldn't you be a little bit more understanding, Jesus? Why don't you meet these seekers where they're at? Is that what's happening here? There's a set of parables in Matthew 13, 44, and I think this might help us understand what's going on. Jesus is there. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. You hear that? No one put a gun to his head to do that. He sold literally everything he used to own with joy because of the treasure he found in Christ. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who, on finding one pearl of great price, this is the thing he's been looking for his entire life. He went and sold all that he had and bought it. The concept of discipleship is very simple. Is Jesus your pearl of great prize? Is Jesus your treasure? Because, brothers and sisters, at the end of the day, discipleship, following Jesus, is about treasuring Jesus. Jesus is not forbidding home ownership. Jesus is not telling us to dishonor our parents and skip their funerals. In fact, Jesus rebukes people who try and use religion to avoid taking care of their parents, Corbin and the Pharisees. What Jesus is saying is, I am more important than home. 
and more satisfying. I am more than parents. I am more supreme than family, financial security. I am supreme over everything in your old life that you have to leave behind to follow me. And this realization is the prerequisite for following Jesus Christ as a disciple. Do you believe this? Do you believe that he's worth selling everything he used to have for? Do we want this commitment, brothers and sisters? Jesus first and everything else a distant second. If we do not like that, we can't follow him. And so uh, to the believer who understands this truly the worth, beauty, and glory of Jesus, we actually can sell all with joy and not look back because his worth, his value, his glory far surpasses anything and everything we have ever had to ever leave behind. Brothers and sisters, the path of discipleship really and simply boils down to this one issue of how important you think Jesus is and how significant he is to you is really the ultimate question, and it is the question which determines our fitness for the kingdom of God. If we're just trying to fit Jesus into the margins, we aren't fit for the kingdom. Our treasuring of Jesus determines everything about us now and into eternity, and what makes us enter this kingdom is not works. It's just ascertaining the value and worth of Jesus. Charles Spurgeon, he says this, so many of us want to be a Christian and something else. But the something else must be written in large capitals and then at the bottom in very small type in a Christian. Is that true of us? Business person first and then a Christian. Athlete and then a follower of Christ. Entrepreneur and then a disciple. Platform builder, super mom, great husband, fit body, and then a follower of Jesus. Can you imagine the change in our own lives if we were to really see Jesus for the treasure that he is and actually put him first in priority? Can you imagine the change in each of your lives if Jesus were really to be first? Brothers and sisters, let us look more to Jesus than we look to anything or anyone else. I'm sure that there are many things within your heart that compete with Jesus for your affection. Some are good, some of them not so good. Uh, Leon Morris, he says this as we close, regularly God tests the earnestness of our hearts by bringing them to a fork in the road. That's what Jesus does here. A fork in the road when it becomes necessary to choose between two ways, which way do we follow? Comfort, custom, convention, or Christ. And that's the fork in the road that this text is bringing us to. Our Lord and our Savior never refuse anyone who wants to come to him. But we must truly come to him and see him for who he really is. Would you please pray with me? Oh, Father, we thank you so much for Jesus. And uh, we thank you so much for how much you know our hearts and how willing you are to take the time to open those hearts and expose them to us so that we might really see ourselves for who we really are. And by the Spirit, I ask God that you would help us see the Son of God for who he really is. Uh, protect us from overly confident, empty professions. Protect us from misplaced priorities. Father, would you show us the joy of giving up everything for the pearl of great price. 
All for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.